Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Mick Jones of Foreigner, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Hey guys, today I have the lovely and legendary Pamela DeBar on My Rock Moment. She's the original LA woman who's led a very storied life one filled with sex, love, and lots and lots of rock and roll. She was given the moniker Queen of the Groupies and recounts all of her memorable rock moments and relationships in her rock tours, her articles, her podcast, and of course, her incredible books. And we're going to discuss quite a bit today, everything from Mick Jagger to Jimmy Page to spirituality to the sexiest moment in rock and roll, according to Pamela. And I have to say, I agree. She is one cool lady, and it's definitely a great conversation. So let's get started. Pamela, thank you for coming on. As I said, I have so been looking forward to this conversation. I knew that even if I had a full day... To pick your brain, it probably wouldn't be long enough. <laughs> oh, my brain has been picked. <laughs> sure. Everybody's feeling picked these days. But for those that are listening, I'm I'm with a woman that really, I mean, for the, the people that listen to my podcast that needs no introduction, Pamela DeBar, aside from being the rock legend that you are, you've also been a best-selling author or are a best-selling author. You've written five books, including mm-hmm. I'm With a Band, which I've read, which is awesome. You also contribute to Please Kill Me, uh, yeah. the column. Mm-hmm. You're yeah, a yeah. And you have writing workshops all over the country, and you have this amazing rock tour that you host in Los Angeles, which I want to take when the world opens back up. Well, I hope you can. I just had to cancel one this Sunday. I know. It's too scary here in California. We're, we're, at the, we're pre-peak with yeah. COVID, you know? So, uh, again... So, yeah, I had to cancel that. I also have a podcast, obviously, on Pantheon. Yeah. And you have a podcast. Yeah. Pamela's Pajama Party. Pajama Party. Yeah. And, you know, before the COVID, we were happy. People would come over and sit on the couch. And actually, during the, uh, you know, the little June, July break last year, Mm -hmm. Rufus Wainwright came and sat on my couch with me. It was one of the best interviews I've done. Yeah. Because he's so open and so beautiful and there was one point he he just started singing a cappella. He sang an entire song a cappella on my couch, and my cat got up from where he was 
and walked over. He was sound asleep. Walked over and sat on Rufus. <laughs> and I can't blame him. <laughs> did he like the singing, or did he want it to stop? <laughs> well, he wanted it. He wanted to be nearer to it. Oh, yeah, yeah it so was great. just a moment. I please, if you haven't heard that one, everybody, Rufus Wainwright and Lydia Barr's pajama party. It was amazing. Oh. I'll, I'll definitely take a listen because I haven't heard that one. And I know we're going to get back to those days. It's coming. Yeah, it's, it's coming. It's yeah. coming. You know, it'll be endemic, but, you know, so are a lot of things. <laughs> exactly. We'll be able to deal with it. I know. I, I, that's my hope that it's the next few weeks. But here we are via Zoom. And I wanted to ask you, you know, you're known as one of the most famous groupies in the world. But what is your relationship even with that word these days? Well, it's a word I've been trying to redeem for most of my life. Um, it was not a bad word originally. It was just a, a term coined by a, a British journalist in the mid-60s. And it didn't even get over to California till about 1968 when I was hanging out with Zeppelin. Yeah. Um, so I had already, you know, met many bands and hung out with just, I would just wouldn't take no, you know, I... Not that I had to. I mean, I was a cute young girl and they let me in backstage and all that. I mean, it was just a different time frame, obviously. Um, you know, mm -hmm. the 60s and 70s was, right. was a lot freer. And when John Lennon got killed, it was some sort of warning to to musicians and things just got tighter and tighter. Oh, and that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That was a lot to do with it, I think. A lot oh. to do with the shift, the gradual shift in the way people saw, you know, fans and groupies, um, they were, they got afraid of them, you know, which mm -hmm. is tragic because that never happened again. Right. You know, it's not something that was going to be repeated. No. And, and even reading your book, you know, the way you talk about just being, having such access to these guys, being able to call backstage, you know, and yeah. get somebody on the phone. I mean, I'm, re I'm reading that and I'm thinking, what? Yeah, Hillman, <laughs> right? That yeah. Chris Hillman. When he was in Manassas, I believe. Um, yeah, you could do that. <laughs> that was the Hollywood Bowl, too. Oh, man. <laughs> he got the word. He got the power. He got the wisdom. He never cowered. He gonna tell you. Well, you know, when I look up the word groupie and you look it up in, you know, the dictionary, it says a person, especially a young woman who regularly follows a pop music group or other celebrity in hopes of meeting or getting to know them. Yeah, that's, that's actually a good description as opposed to wanting to bed them, which is not and was not always the case. Yeah. By any means, you know, we were a certain age. And, you know, with ex extreme libidos, and that was fine. And part, sometimes that took place, which is only natural. But not always. Not mm -hmm. always. I wanted to meet Zappa, for instance. He was married, and I was also kind of worshipped his wife, too. I always I always loved the, the, the girlfriends and wives of these people. You know, I never t wanted to take any one of them away from those women. I, I, I admired the women as well, because I never wanted that to happen to me. You know, exactly. So, yeah. So uh, the Zappa thing, uh, I guess you could say I was a groupie for him way before the word, uh, before I'd heard the word. 
I saw him a couple of times at the at the uh, riots on the Sunset Strip where I reached out and touched his hair and it was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't even Gail. know him then, huh? He was with Gail. I wasn't trying to pick him up or anything. And then another time at uh, the Cheetah Club, I was dancing and did the same thing. I reached out and touched his hair and he kind of threw me on the ground and rolled around with me. Gail was there watching, you know, <laughs> it wasn't. It, and so, and then I met him and, you know, but so I revered him. Also, Captain Beefheart, who I met at a very young age in high school, and they were friends. So I always was drawn to not only just the obvious bands, but but intellectual, you know, mm-hmm. you know, game shifting people, uh, you know, not the obvious. I love the Beatles when I was 14, 15. I, I still love the Beatles, but there was more to me. <laughs> than that. Sure. Sure. Well, I think what came through too was how gutsy you were, are, and you tell the story about trying to see the Beatles when they, because you brought that up, when they come to Los Angeles and they're staying in Bel Air, I think it is. And you just, come hell or high water, you were going to get a glimpse of those Beatles and you did. (laughs) Yeah, I did. And I ultimately met them all. Yeah. So that's a very, you know, yes. This scene was so, so fascinating to me because I grew up in Los Angeles as well. You grew up in the Valley. I grew up out here in the South Bay mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to do some of the things in the nineties when I was in those coming of age years that you did, it just wouldn't have happened. Like you said, think there was that shift that happened yeah. and yeah. 1980 may have been the marker um, with Lennon's passing, but how did even the scene change in Los Angeles? from the 60s to the 70s for you? The 60s went into the 70s, really. And, you know, gradually the harder drugs started infiltrating the, the peace and love scene, you know, which altered it terribly. And, you know, the, the music got harder and thrashier mm-hmm. to go along with it. There were exceptions, of course. I mean, but for the most part, it, it just became a little bombastic and a little people were snorting way too much coke yeah. <laughs> you know and that's a, an awful drug that that makes you think you're elvis for tw- 20 <laughs> minutes and then you want to keep being elvis so you right. keep making a mess it's just a nightmare i mean i i of course you know i never struggled with any drugs because i'm not addicted but i i tried them all i tried all of them you know mm-hmm. but I, it didn't stick Sure. Because I'm not addictive, but so many people around me were. relationship in particular that um, is highlighted quite a bit throughout the book, and I'm going to bring him up because I love him, is Graham Nash. I'm sorry, not Graham, Graham, Graham Parsons. Parsons. Oh, you like that? Graham Nash is a good guy, too. But Graham, Parsons, Graham Parsons. Yeah, it was a, the biggest tragedy, one of my the worst tragedies in my life. Um, 
because he was only 26 years old. Right. He was so young. Yeah. I was 23, I guess, when he passed. And it was, you know, just, uh, just God awful. Um, <sighs> such a loss. But he, he, he accomplished what he came here to do. Although his spirit is so lively that I don't think he feels he's completely, you know, accomplished it. He's still trying from the other side. You can feel it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I feel him. And of course, his daughter, Polly, is my goddaughter. And she was on your your podcast just recently. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Recently. Yeah. It was a very, she revealed things that I, some stuff I hadn't even heard yet. It was amazing oh. how forthright she was on that show. I mean, it, it it was a fascinating dynamic to me, and I thought the book was so well-read. And guys, she's written a ton of books, um, and they're all just so enticing. And I think what it did for me was it brought me back. Now, granted, I, I didn't get to live that life with rock stars and get to meet anybody like that, but reading some of those passages as a young girl, you can identify with everything you were feeling. Because <laughs> I remember, even as a freshman, when a senior, the captain of the football team, would come and sit down and start talking to me. Mm-hmm. And it's this feeling of going, oh my God, he's talking to me. I don't know if I belong here. Yeah, I'm going to go with it. <laughs> yeah, there was that. You, you know, I learned how to act as if in situations such as Altamont, being with the Stones after that event, you know, in this small room. just me and the stones and a couple roadies and michelle phillips and graham that was the only and it was like okay i'm here in this room can i handle this i was i was massaging mick's shoulders this was after the right tragedy after the tragedy and he was saying yeah i think this is it i can't go on after this i'm just going how can i help here how can i be of assistance so i just rubbed his shoulders and and kept thinking okay this will be over soon i mean it was (laughs) really harsh so i found myself in very many you know forrest gumpy type situations yes yes (laughs) and in terms of of mick do you still speak to him today you had such a long relationship with him no he he's someone you know wasn't a romance well I don't know what you'd call that, because in those days, you could have sex with your friends. You could enjoy each other. We were so young. We were in our early 20s, you know, me and Mick. I was maybe 20, and he was 24 or something, 25. And, you know, we're talking young people. This is another thing that people try to put their big, highfalutin adult ideals on stuff I did, you know, when I was a kid. And stuff we all did when we were kids mm-hmm. in a whole different era when when free love and freedom freedom of speech and you know i mean it was such a different time that it, it's impossible to to relate it to people unless you were there and you know we're dying out right so what's happening it's becoming you know mythology mm-hmm. but anyway mick and i were had a lot of fun in in la and in london when i was there um, and, you know, I went to Europe. I was supposed to, you know, we were, we were kind of hot and heavy when I decided to go to Europe. 
and travel around with my friend and, you know, hitchhike through all the countries. And when I came back and called him, Bianca answered the phone. Oh, God. Don't you ever <laughs> call here again. And that was that. So that was that. I didn't, you know, I, my life went on. Exactly. Michael, soon after that, my husband, my ex-husband, and, you know, my life continued, you know, and, and I just didn't think about, you know, seeing Nick. But, you know, recently I thought, wow, wouldn't it be fun to be back in touch with him? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, he keeps, you know, getting younger and younger girlfriends and wives. <laughs> He's, he has a toddler child. But, it's you know, crazy. I think we would have a good time. His daughter recently, Elizabeth Jagger, uh, bought one of my portraits. And she bought, signed by Baron Woolman, one of my rare portraits. And mm. she said she was buying it. She bought, she got in touch with me on Instagram and bought this amazing picture of me. She said it was for her dad and she was going to surprise him and hang it in his office. And that he often spoke of me in a very kind way. So I thought, well, that's nice. I wish we could just yeah. you know, say hi to each other. Oh my gosh. Well, how long ago was this? Oh, about two years year and a half maybe oh it was yeah, right before everything shut down it was right around that time yeah <laughs> oh well maybe maybe things will change and <laughs> i know at the time you, you know you and you and mick had a great relationship but you were also very much involved with jimmy page Do you I think if you... both of them at once, you know, people just can't <laughs> now, but I was trying to be, true. I was, I was being true to Jimmy. I thought he was being true to me. And Mick was saying, you know, he's on the road. Don't be ridiculous, basically. <laughs> and when I found out Mick was right, he was, Jimmy was not being true to me on the road. I finally gave in to Mick and, you know, we had a great time. Then Jimmy came to, you know, came back to town and I saw him, you know, it was just, it was a, like I said, it was a very brief period in time, probably like Berlin in the 20s, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's not going to come again, probably for a while. I mean, it may may, may happen eventually, but not for Not a like while. this. Yeah. The There's music. not going to be music like that because that was, it was new, mm-hmm. you know, and everything is, is being imitated in various ways ever right. since then, except the rap world. That was something unique. But in rock and roll, you know, it's there's nothing. I mean, I don't consider. Uh, I like Billie Eilish, but I, she's not rock and roll. You know, there, there is Courtney Love was rock and roll. Mm-hmm. There aren't. There's the, unfortunately there's still not enough rock and rolling women. But, no, there aren't. But you know, in our day, when the GTOs, you know, was were formed with Zappa at the helm, there was no such thing. So that was another way that I feel, you know, pretty innovative, even though Frank really made it happen. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think back then the music was totally innovative, but it was also in lockstep with what was happening in the world. And if you look at any of the old footage, um, I think speaking of Graham Nash, maybe that's where- Graham Parsons. No, I'm saying Graham Nash. Oh, oh, you are. Yeah, you're like, you did it again. I was watching some special and it was Graham Nash who was talking about 
how their music, it was probably like 1972 or whatever, yeah. they were maybe getting back together, how their music is going to change the world. And they mm. truly believed that. They did believe and, that. Yeah. We all believed we were living in a re revolutionary time and it was the renaissance of so many things and we were going to change the world. That was the hippie consciousness, flower children and all that. That was very sincere. Yeah, but you uh, were but seeing the person that to me who is my still my absolute hero who who made that happen is Bob Dylan. Oh, sure. He he started saying important things that he got from Woody Guthrie and you know various people in, in from his history, but he put it into rock and roll. The day he plugged in, you know, they're, they're making a movie of that with Timothee Chalamet playing him of the day Dylan plugged in. The day Dylan plugged in at Newport. Anyway, he. He, I consider that the sexiest moment in rock and roll when he plugged into that thing. He put the long, interestingly shaped, you know, thingy into the hole. <laughs> and that was it. That was the sexiest moment in rock and roll because it was the first, really. Along with, well, of course, the rhythm and blues. You know, everything was coming up at once. But sure. Dylan said the words. Dylan put the, the all important words into rock and roll and made people like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, right. and even the Beatles. And, you know, the Stones even tried to be deep <laughs> because yeah. of Dylan. And, you know, he also turned them on to pot and everything else. He's, he's the most important figure of our generation and will be seen as so with, I mean, you know, he's won everything that you can possibly win being and a human being on earth today. Yeah, he should. And when he plugged in in 1965, you weren't at that uh, no. new book. No, I was still too young. I was still in high school. You were still in high school. Yeah, and that, that was, was on the other side of yeah, the I was Exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past you to find a way to get out there. <laughs> but what was the overall reaction at the time? You know, because they talk about how he got booed and, and all of that. But, you know, for an onlooker like you, who's sitting in her bedroom, maybe reading about it or hearing it. or well, I was already into Dylan. My my high school chum, Victor Hayden, who was Don Van Vliet's cousin, Captain Beefheart, who changed my whole life. They both changed my life. He had turned me on to Dylan. So I was way ahead of that even. Um, and to me, Plugging in was the, you know, like I said, even then was the sexiest thing I'd ever heard of. But he was already saying things, even in Like a Rolling Stone, which is my favorite song of all time. Mm. You know, he was pointing stuff out. He was making you look at things in a different way and seeing them. Yeah. You know, you couldn't avoid seeing what he was talking about. He was he was just, I mean, I can't, uh, there's, I can't say enough about him, which, and I finally met him. It's in the second book. And uh, my second memoir, take another little piece of my heart. And, you know, it was a it was a stunning experience for me. He read and my book. I'm with the band. And oh, he did. Yeah. And I th these were the days when you could actually go backstage. And, you know, if you were invited by him, yeah. so he invited me backstage and I walked through the door and he held his arms out and said, Pam, you guys. Oh. Very few people I allow call me that. <laughs> I read your book cover to cover and you're a good writer. And it was like, okay, I can die. I just got chills telling you that because it's one of the greatest moments in my life. I said, okay, I could die now. <laughs> Bob Dylan's telling you you're a great writer, <laughs> which you well, are. Well, he said good. So that's fine. Doesn't that mean Bob. great in Bob speak? <laughs> Maybe. Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back.
and we're back. There's something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down I actually wanted to ask you, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, Sunset Strip riots. Mm-hmm. Sunny and, and so were they. And they had matching vests on and their fake fur vests. Maybe they're real fur, I don't know, but. You know, I felt like I was in the right place when I saw them and the Zappas there. And uh, it was a meaningful thing. You know, they were going to sh- close the Pandora's box. That's one of the stops on my rock tours. And I, oh. I read from the books and I tell that whole story of that riot. And it was, you know, one of those incidents where, okay, I'm changing the world by, by protesting like this. I went to a lot of protests. That's what people were protesting. <laughs> it's a very important time to protest the powers that, that were, you know? Yeah. We gave them a good run. Yeah. Run. Well, there was such a disconnect. You know, I felt um, the baby boomers that were coming up and the establishment, uh, as I've talked about mm-hmm. before with uh, <laughs> in other episodes, and they really did not see eye to eye. And it was very apparent out here in Los Angeles as the strip was evolving. And the old generation or the old guard, which was that kind of Hollywood elite and those posh bars and nightclubs and restaurants, um, Villanova being one of them, you know, they were were starting to fade. They were starting to succumb to the change that was happening on the strip. Yeah, they, they had to, otherwise they would have died. So, so because the young people, you know, were demanding change. And that was part of it. We wanted to be recognized, you know, as part of the world and not, quotes, teenagers. You know, that would, you know, before, actually the 50s is when that changed. People like James Dean and, of course, Elvis changed the idea of what a teenager was and was capable of. And it wasn't just an in-between stage from childhood to parenthood uh, or childhood to adulthood. So that was Big and of course I worshipped James Dean and Elvis. Mm-hmm. I have both of them tattooed on my back. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, they're signatures. Oh my gosh! I, I was afraid so to get their faces in case it was wrong. I have I have Jesus's face because you can't get that wrong tattooed on my back. But I have, you know, James Dean and Elvis back there too. Their signatures. And the the whole Jesus, I say the whole Jesus thing, but the whole the whole matter of religion is something that's uh, come up a lot for you as you were kind of living your life and going about, you know, the things you wanted to do, religion was constantly in the Religion and spirituality. I, I went from religion to spirituality pretty early because I was fighting, like I fought against many things, against the church, the churches that I was going to. I started, I mean, I was born again at eight years old. Oh, and wow. that's what, that's what my... Next memoir is I'm writing a third memoir. It's called Sex, God, and Rock and Roll. Oh, gosh. I've got to read about that. My spiritual journey, which was totally alongside my rock and roll journey. 
And so from Jesus, I went to Yogananda, and from Yogananda, I went to Krishnamurti. I mean, it's endless, okay? Now I'm chanting Nami Ohringe Kyo. I never stop. It's, it's an it's a, it's a integral part of who I am and as powerful or more so than my music interests, yeah. No, I definitely understand that. I, I loved a good party growing up, and I was also raised Catholic. Ah, and okay. there was a lot of that. Look, look um, what I'm wearing today. Oh, I love it. Oh, <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. For those who can't see me, I'm wearing a big, big Jesus heart with the, you know, the crown of <laughs> around it and everything. A gorgeous golden shirt. Yeah. And <laughs> I went through that as well. And I think it's a matter of, you know, being true to who you are and following your instincts or sometimes your inhibitions, but also finding a way to incorporate whether it's religion or spirituality or whatever it is, you know, into your life. And that was woven through your book too. And I found that yeah, interesting it is. identifying it, it, with it. I don't know if you've read the second uh, autobiography, but there's a lot more of Started, that. okay. There's a, you know, I, I, I had past life regressions. I, I mean, the stuff, healings, I mean, it's, and, and w when that book came out in 1992, I got such shit. People were caught. They said, it's, yeah, it's really good. It's really interesting, you know, with uh, all the various people in it. A lot of Don Johnson back then and a lot of, you know, various musicians and, you know, the Sex Pistols and all that. And they said, but the woo-woo stuff, you know, I'll skip through that. You know, that was in 92. Wow. So now the woo-woo stuff has gotten much more prevalent and acceptable in the world. Yep. <laughs> well, I'm hoping the third memoir will, you know, do well. But I'm working on another book now before I can do that one. And it's still a secret and it'll be out probably next Christmas. Oh, how exciting. Well, Christmas, I mean. yeah. Oh my goodness. How long does it take you to write these? I mean, well, I guess this it one's depends on longer because I'm, I'm writing someone's book with them. I've never done that. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's a, it's been a challenge, but incredible. I've made a lifelong friend doing it as well. Um, but writing in someone else's voice, which is what I'm doing, has uh, been very unique for me because I have a very vibrant voice, if I don't say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that book should be done this summer out in, in, at Christmas. And then I'm going to work. Then I'm going to start my third memoir. God, how do you keep up with everything? <laughs> I oh, guess there's so much. Yeah. There's so much. Some days, and I feel guilty when I do this, but some days I say, you know what? I have to go out to five thrift stores and have my Zen shopping experience. <laughs> I also have house sales, clothing sales, Zoom online vintage sales. I mean, I, I, I see do a million that. things. And yeah. this is just the, the wardrobe you've amassed over from the 60s on. Well, uh, no, I don't sell any of my, my own. People come over to my sales and say, so did you wear this with Jimmy Page? No, that was 53 years ago, honey. That is long <laughs> gone, the clothes I wore with Jimmy Page. Um, you know, and I couldn't make it up, but I don't. I'm one of those honest people. <laughs> I say, yes, see that spot right there? No, I don't do that. I don't do that. want to tell you about the girl I love. My, she looks so fine. She's the only one that I've been dreaming of Maybe someday she will be all mine I wanna tell her that I love her so I threw with her every touch I need to tell
speaking of speaking of things in Jimmy Page, I wanted to ask you. I know he'd given you something in the past. It was a bra- It was a turquoise bracelet. Or- no, he gave me a turquoise ring, and he sent me ring. for Christmas. Christmas '68. He sent me the most amazing uh, nouveau enameled Phoenix um, necklace, and that was like. December 24th, I got that. On January 9th, his birthday, he met the lady he would have his first child with. Hmm. So I lost out. I was about to really become, I think, you know, really important in his life. His, you know, Bonzo was saying, I've never seen him act this way. You know, maybe you'll be Mrs. Page one day, that kind of stuff. That Hmm. was actually going on. And uh, then he met Charlotte, who he had his daughter Scarlett with and was true to for maybe about eight or nine months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably a good, good, uh, <laughs> good run there. <laughs> but anyway, that, that necklace was stolen by a kleptomaniac married to one of the Beach Boys. And none of us did not know that about her. We trusted this girl, everybody. And things started going missing everywhere. And one of them was my beautiful Jimmy Page necklace. So I'm really bummed out that I don't have you that You never, never uncovered it. No. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Didn't even goodness. realize she was the one until a couple of years later. It was long gone. <laughs> Boy, well, I'd love to find that. <laughs> yeah. She was hawking them and selling them? Or? Who knows? She may have just been putting them in the trash. I mean, she was just a klepto. That's a bad illness. <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, real bad illness. And you'll lose you also stole, which bad. is worse than the Jimmy Page necklace, half of my diary from 1968. Because every few months I would, you know, write, I called them journals and I wrote everything in them. The second half of 1968 is missing. And, and luckily, when I was writing on, with the band, oh no, no, it was for the second book, uh, Cynthia Plastercaster, my dear friend, sent me all the letters I'd written her during that time frame. So I was able to at least kind of- get some of those stories in there. I'd forgotten that, I, that Graham Parsons and I were actually dating. Before I realized he had Nancy tucked away, Polly's mother, in Santa Barbara. And I went, wait a minute. Okay, wait. I'm in love with Chris Hillman anyway. I better stop this. And (laughs) we just became, you know, we were just great, great friends. Man. Um, Yeah, the way you you kept count of everything just floored me. Floored me. It's such a detailed... Um, retrospective of everything that was happening. Yeah, I kept those diaries um, and it was really important stuff. I would have them with me. I took it with me wherever I went and would scribble in them, you know. So a lot of it was real immediate stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Here mm-hmm. comes Jimmy Page. He's just got off the stage. Oh my God, he's so wet. He's getting in the car. That kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's the stuff that I love to hear. You know, I, I have an Instagram, and on my Instagram, I'm constantly posting photos of, you know, it's a, there's a focus on California rock, but it's rock and roll from the 60s and 70s. And the pictures mm. I love are the ones that are behind the scenes. They're not posed. The rockers are in their element. They don't always seem to know there's even a camera around. And Mm -hmm. those are the moments that I absolutely love. And those are the things that people can get from your books. Mm -hmm. Reading about those people and hearing the conversations in their mind as they're reading them, you know, um, what these people say and how they behave behind closed doors. 
Yeah. And they're, you know, those guys are pushing 80. Yeah. You know, that's, that is, you know, luck I was a little younger than they are, but uh, <laughs> I'm not pushing 80 yet, but you know, they are. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Dylan is 80, isn't yep. he? And, and, and Paul McCartney. Yep. You know, these, these people are not going to be around a whole lot longer. And I do believe that my books will carry on. I'm with the band's been in print for 34 years. So that's pretty unusual. Um, and, and, you know, some, some years I, a lot of people are reading it cause I get my checks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The fascination never dies, right? Like you said, this was a moment in time that will never be replicated. The music I could say arguably is the best. Oh yeah, it is. The and, best rock and roll. Yeah. 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 And you want to read about these people. You want to read about these people that, you know, changed music. Woman's point of view. There there wasn't a woman's point of view on that scene. Exactly. You know, there have been plenty since then. But um, my my first publisher always likes to remind me that I had a lot to do with um, the acceptance of nobody's, in quotes, writing a memoir, you know. I I helped open doors for people to who no one knew who I was in 1987. You know, Mm -hmm. the GTOs that were a long gone thing. There was, you know, it was no one thought about us. Okay, and I was a a married woman, you know, with a kid, and I just said, you know, if someone might, well, here's how it happened. Uh, Stephen Davis was doing a Doors book, no, a Zeppelin book. He did both. He did the Zeppelin book, and he interviewed me. And he said, you know, it was 1984 or five, said, you, you know, you have enough material here. You should do your own book. So that really helped. And I always took writing workshops, you know, occasionally. And I was in the middle of one. And uh, I turned in a, a, a piece about meeting the Stones the first time, which is a very fun story. Mm-hmm. And she said, also at the same time, you, you should think about writing a book. So I did. I mean, you know, I just said, okay, I'm going to do this. Can't hurt. Had no idea if anybody would care or, you know, or read it or anything. And, and of course, it became a bestseller. And I was introduced on the Today Show by Brian Gumbel as queen of the groupies. This was a, something was new to me. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay, I'll take that moniker. Thanks. So it was funny. <laughs> so it was a, a, quite a hubbub about that book. And, of course, I had no idea that it would be. But it is a woman's point of view in the center of the third eye of the storm there. Exactly. And, and it's, it's, I had no idea I was writing that. And how was it received by everybody that was in it? You know, the Led Zeppelin and um, the Only Jimmy Page tried to squash it in uh, England. Didn't work, of course. But because he didn't like a, the scene I wrote about was the one thing I thought, should I leave this in or take it out? leave it in or take it out. I should have taken it out. But it's about him crawling across the floor long after we were dating or seeing each other. Dating was not the right word. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I had him crawling across the floor to get to the medical bag of heroin, right? And I should have left that out. But, wow. you know, I was a witness to it. Right. And that was him then. Exactly. You know? and, and it wasn't a big secret either. But mm-hmm. he didn't like that. Hmm. But I've seen him since, you know, Robert and I have stayed friends for decades. I mean, very close friends. And then he just disappeared, too. 
you know, if, if these guys, these older guys get, you know, all of them, it seems like, get much younger women in their lives. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to think about their past. They, they want to think about their future with this young, young, young woman. Yeah. Who are so, so enthralled with them, you know. <laughs> so Robert has dropped me twice through the years. Hmm. And he dropped me again, maybe six years ago. And it's always devastating because, you know, we, he comes to my house, we have dinner, we do all kinds of shit. And then he's gone. And then so, he just won't return calls. No. credit i will say i went and saw the stones two months ago their last big show in austin mm-hmm. which was sure it was awesome shit show it was a i shit know show. i will never go back a to sh- that shit austin. show what do you mean a shit show? The, the venue was just oh. horrendous oh. and you know we paid up the nose for these tickets and we had an obstructed view but i will say the only reason i say that is because they had the stage and then, you know, they have that, that partition that comes out, then Mick can run up and yeah. down. And yep. so we got to see him very well when he would do that. And boy, does he still put on a show. That guy was singing. He was running up and down the stage he, he nonstop. so inspiring. Oh, playing he's the guitar, the harmonica. Yeah, because he's several years older than I am and is just, he's in better shape than I am too. And he... You know, he, he is a miracle almost the way he, he, he and obviously he takes incredibly good care of himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and he always did. You know, he was never oh, really? a, a mess like everyone around him. And he's mm. a Leo. Plant is also a Leo. And both of them were too proud to succumb to the, the, the traps going on in the 60s and 70s. They just did not. You know, they dabbled like I did, for instance, and, and that was it. They knew when to stop, and they're both big, beautiful, healthy people still. <laughs> you Interesting. Know? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, you're, if you're addictive or not, too. Well, that's exactly it. They, if you're they, addictive or they not. They weren't. They just weren't. Neither one of them. Well, and you hear all these, obviously, stories about things that transpired, and they talk about the band as a whole, and I'm guilty of lumping, you know, those two musicians in there as well. I would, I assumed that Mick and both Robert, they were just as debaucherous as the oh, rest of the band. No. In fact, both of them had to watch it going on around them in their bands, uh-huh. which, which was not good. They, they were not amused. But of course, you can't do anything with Keith Richards. Again. <laughs> There's no way you could have said, hey, you better not do that. No. Yeah. And yeah. the same with Bonzo and Jimmy, you know, and it's a miracle that Jimmy Page has come through that incredible. A lot of people give him all kinds of shit for being with all those, you know, young, especially Laurie Maddox, the young women, you know. But it was people still don't understand the era or the time frame. And Laurie Maddox wanted to be there, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I get shit because I she's my friend, and it's just <laughs> come on. 
I was of age, by the way. Yeah. All these shenanigans. <laughs> you know, honestly, you were involved in a time um, and involved with people that the people that are throwing arrows would have only died to have experienced. Oh, yeah. You know? Did, did you happen to read that um, review of my book? They're still reviewing it 34 years later That's in crazy. this magazine called Gawker. Just last week, I got reviewed twice, 34-year-old book in the last month. Really? And and she, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating take on it. It's, it's negative and positive both. Hmm. Um, I got so much response from it. It was like people wanted to fight her or they wanted to kiss her or this lady who wrote this. Very I mean, polarizing. Just, yeah, very. That's a good word for it. Yes. Um, I, I just Google Gawker in my name because it's worth reading. It's worth, it's worth reading. Oh my God. She's jealous and, and spiteful all at once. It's amazing. Well, and a woman being able to do what she wants and live her life the way she wants, even if that includes her sexual exploits, is very scary to people. And that's that's the uh, the still, basic word I'm going to use. That's what's freaky to me still. I understand it back then, uh, being a little nervous and afraid of it. But all these years later, I mean, come on. It's weird. It's still anti-feminist shit is what it is and you know i at, when the book came out i was you know called an anti-feminist and i was called submissive to the rock stars i'm so not that it was so the opposite of that i was mm -hmm. exactly where i wanted to be and i put myself there and yep. that's feminism to me yep exactly exactly so, and you know and I even more slacks i wore secret <laughs> dresses and and really really high heels okay platforms and feathers and sequins and everything. I was a very femme feminist. <laughs> yeah, and you owned it. And you yeah. owned it. Um, no. But you know what? When you no. get a rise out of someone, it means that you're poking at what they believe are their core values, what their idea of right yeah. is. Yeah, they're going to fight it. They're, they're going to fight it. Sure. Because if you change their mind, you change who they think they are. Yeah, and sometimes that's really a good thing, you know, yes. people would open up, you know, in my writing workshops, which is the best thing I do, are my women's memoir workshops. They Sounds are, amazing. They have changed me for the better, too. I get to hear these everyone's stories, and I've always truly believed that everyone couldn't write their own memoir. I mean, I think it's important. Everyone's life story is important and mm -hmm. shared you can help people with, with the stuff you've been through in life and, you know, good, bad, ugly, beautiful, everything. So I have seen incredible awakenings and cathartic understanding and by people writing about their lives, you know, and not holding in the difficult things and sharing the beautiful things. I mean, it has been, I've been doing it for 22 years now. Hmm. And it wow. is the best. I do it all over the country and, and London and Toronto. Oh. I like to say the world, but, you know, I only speak English. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's they, every time they, they, you know, I get, you know, my classes have a dozen to, to 15 people live and on Zoom, too, about the same. And because of COVID, I started doing them on Zoom. And that's been, you know, God bless Zoom. I'm telling you, it's very yeah. important. Yeah. And um, like we're doing right now. And mm -hmm. and uh, that's been 
amazingly helpful for me to get through the pandemic and of the women writing too. Sure. I just sure. started a new uh, eight week uh, memoir workshop, women with Let It Bleed, my my most recent book, How right. to Write a Rock and Memoir. Yeah. So we use that as a guidepost and we write about ourselves for eight weeks, eight Mondays. So, and everything's at my website, PamelaDebarOfficial.com is my website. PamelaDebarOfficial.com, and they can find all the information there. All kinds of stuff, yeah. <laughs> I sell, I have new, I'm with the band t-shirts that my son designed, finally. I, I'd i been aligned with so many companies trying to do t-shirts with me, and clothes, and jewelry, and things, and none of it worked out. So I said, you know what? My son is a designer, and I want him to design my logo. So he did. Oh, that's and, so fun. And it's really neat, neato looking. So go check it out if you haven't been there. Oh, there's a lot of good stuff on there. Yeah. And and me personally, I can't wait to take that rock tour. I'm right down the road. And I was looking uh-huh. at the one, the most recent one that was supposed to happen on Sunday. And then I went back and I thought, well, sign of the we'll times. Be, uh, end of February, I think we will have come, the peak will have come and come down, you know, mm-hmm. the way it is in Boston and New York and New Jersey. So I'm thinking by the end of February, I'm doing my next one. I usually do them every six weeks or so. I mean, the people come and they are jaw dropped. They come from really all over the world on my tours. I have a great driver named Kip Brown, my James Dean buddy. And we, you know, we drive around Hollywood and, you know, and just I tell stories about what happened here, what happened there, what happened there. You know, there's a a burrito stand with a it's a car rental place now. But where the burritos were recording at A&M, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Grand Parsons mm-hmm. Band, um, you know, they, they'd go to lunch every day across the street at this burrito joint. They didn't know what they were going to call themselves. And that's how they got their name, Flying Burrito Brothers. They, you know, So I tell stories like no one has ever seen oh. or heard before. You know, oh. it's, And I turn people on to Graham. So oh, many people sure. still don't know who he is. And they go away really, really knowing who he is. Oh, yeah. I force him him down their throats. (laughs) Well, he contributed quite a bit. Yeah. Oh, he's so important. And do you head up into Laurel Canyon at all? Oh, yeah. I show him Frank Zappa's old digs and, and, uh, and, you know, where I hung out with Hillman. You know, we go to the Canyon store and, you know, uh, it's... So there's so much there. There's so much oh. in Laurel Canyon that, that I share up there. Isn't that where you also had that interaction with Jim Morrison? In yes, Laurel we go to Jim Morrison's house on Love Street, of course. And I read the whole story, that crazy story about Jim. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you even spent time with him. <laughs> I know, he's, he's become mythologized probably above all the others because he died so young and was so famous. Yeah. And so beautiful. There's yeah. nothing like it. And it still isn't. No one can imitate the doors. No. You know? so. How was Jim as a person spending time with him? Well, I knew him very early on. Well, I knew him all the way through until he moved to France. I saw him right before he went to France. And he told me he was finally going to work on his poetry book. He'd cleaned up right before he left, which is such a crime. Um, but up until then, he'd been a mess. He was a local mess. We all said, uh-oh, here comes Morrison. People just don't know how he changed. They still see him with that naked boy with the beads around his neck. But, man, he became a real mess. He was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would literally avoid it. 
but my early days with him were sweet because he was a he was it was the album hadn't even come out yet um i'd seen them play locally they were a local band you know in small clubs and uh loved them of course so you know I think people should read the book to get the story. But, 100%. Uh, <laughs> 100%. But you have to read. Quite a story. And he told me he wanted to be known as a poet. Yeah. That was his whole thing. All of this, to me, um, was really fascinating because you are that direct contact to so much that has happened, to so much that's transpired. And it's changed. It changed your generation, but it also changed my generation as well. Sure. That People music are always going to be fascinated with it because of the music that came out of it. And, and, and that, you know, we, we fought against racism and we fought against war. And we, you know, it was just it was a time of rebellion. And people yeah. see, you know, people want to be rebels. You know, mm -hmm. people do. People inside themselves, they see themselves as rebels. They want to admit, ch create change right. and make something good happen in the world, you know. Mm -hmm. So, And that's I what you did, that's being what we there. were trying to do, yes. We were working at that, for sure. At love-ins. Love-ins were a real thing. The bands played for free. You know, people blew bubbles and carried flowers around and, you know, incense sticks. I mean, it was real. Yeah. No, we you experienced that up in San Francisco even. Too. I mean, I know they had them here too, but. I went, yeah, many love it. See, Half naked, you know, just bearing cupcakes for the masses. And, you know, I was a, I was a flower child. Yeah, but you were doing, you were doing what you could at that time. The most yeah. you could. Yeah. You know, and then you also said something in a past interview. I don't know what it was, but it resonated with me. So I wrote it down and you said, if you're around a man and you try to appreciate and admire what they're doing, they just get better at it. That's just mm -hmm. the nature of the relationship. The goal is to uplift them and yeah. help them realize their potential. That's right. That's right. I that thought that was exactly right. beautiful. If you appreciate what a man does, whether he's a musician or not whatever he's doing, if you appreciate it, admire it, and tell him that he wants you around. Yeah. Anybody. Do, but wants men it. more. Men need more. Men, men need it more. <laughs> men need heading. You know. <laughs> well, and you did that. <laughs> and there was some great music that came out of it. <laughs> Pamela, this has been so much fun. Thank you for making the time. Well, thank totally. you, honey. And I am not ashamed to admit to everybody that's listening, I was so excited and so nervous to have you on. <laughs> good, good, I know, I just showed all my cards. Wild <laughs> A big thank you to Pamela DeBar for being on My Rock Moment. That was so much fun. She's such a great lady. You can find all things Pamela, her writing workshops, her online store, her book info, podcast info at PamelaDeBarOfficial.com. It's all there. And I'll put the website link in the show notes. And if you come to LA, be sure to check out her rock tour. You'll get to see Laurel Canyon and the Sunset Strip in a new way. All right, guys, thanks for listening. And we'll see you at the next one. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.